0: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is the Serum Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management, archaeology, and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode number 142 for August 1st, 2018. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we talk about competition amongst archaeologists. So go check your contracts for no-compete clauses because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. All right, welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today is Stephen in Calgary Hello. and Doug in Scotland. Hey, everyone. What we're going to talk about today is a topic that I think a lot of us talk about when we're at the bar and, and just screwing around and, and talking to our friends. It's uh, It has to do with with the business of archaeology. And I and I kind of wish Sonia was on here to talk about this because she's done exactly this. Her and I both were working for other companies. And I don't know Sonia's past, so I'm not going to say exactly what she did, but the, the nuts and bolts of it are her and I both were working for other companies. And then shortly after leaving a company or maybe as a planned escape from the company. I don't really know what her deal was, but we started our own companies. And and I don't even know if Sonya went directly from who she was working for to working for herself or if there was some stuff in between while she was planning. I'm not really sure. But for me, there was not. And... One of the things we want to talk about today is this sort of paranoia between archaeology companies about work and jobs and we we all know there's a limited number of projects out there but there's a fair number of companies and everybody's trying to work and and just about every company I've ever worked for unless they have many many offices and those offices can kind of share money when one has a especially in different states of course when one has maybe a boom year and the other one has kind of a bust year they can maybe share resources and and keep the payroll going but In a lot of cases, a lot of these archaeology companies, man, they are just making payroll and maybe that's okay for them. Maybe they like that. Maybe just making payroll is okay because they want to they're focusing on the research. You know, they're really research scientists and they're focusing on doing projects and doing research. And if that's your goal, then that's great. But when we're talking about business ownership, the typical goal is to, you know, have a profit and and do more work and expand your business and keep going. Now you don't have to expand forever. I don't I don't follow that model. I think you expand to a point where you're comfortable. But then you know and that and and your comfort level is dependent on your own self. So you have to kind of figure that out for yourself. But you expand to your comfort level and you say, okay, we're fine. Let's just keep doing projects at this level and not uh, not ramp up at all. Um, but I think where some companies get in trouble is they might get a year where they have you know six or seven big projects where they need thirty or forty field techs. And so they use those resources to buy bigger offices and more trucks and all these things. And they don't just handle those projects the way they have them and then, you know, move on and go back down to the level they were at. So I don't know. Uh, I don't know where I'm going to go with this and where I'm going to start with this. But Doug, I think you kind of gave us the idea for the topic a little bit. So you guys just feel to feel free to jump in. But I, I don't know what you feel about archaeologists starting their own business and and this competition, how can we solve it? What can we do?
1: First, I think it would be good if we just discussed a little bit of the general problem. And I think it's it's something that I've experienced uh, working in the US, working in the UK, working in CRM commercial, working in academia, is this, I might not be describing it in the best way, but this sort of paranoia among archaeologists that I've not found um working in other sectors which is this this very closely guarded yeah some archaeologists are really intense about guarding what they do Um, they won't Mm -hmm. share data they won't share reports they won't share information and it usually comes down to this this idea that somehow they're going to be scooped or their work's Mm -hmm. going to be stolen or they're going to be somehow betrayed and have, you know, something horrible go wrong. And I've actually investigated this a little bit. So I've, I've had people, you know, a couple of podcasts ago, we talked about how I, I record talks and stuff like that. And on occasion, um, I've had one person say, you know, I don't want my talk recorded. I've had had my work stolen and stuff like that, and I don't want it to be stolen again. I find that a bit odd because one, you're at a conference talking about your work. <laughs> so while a, a recording would make it easier for someone to sort of, I guess, quote unquote, steal your work or your ideas, they could do that regardless. Mm-hmm. Um, it, so I also find it a bit odd. And it's, it's a sort of paradox of archaeology is we should be communicating our work uh, either to ourselves or the public. And I know there's issues with um, looting and we don't want to, uh, that's probably too too broad to go into. You know, that's communicating between archaeologists and the public, but just like between archaeologists and archaeologists, uh, there tends to be this sort of very guarded sense among some archaeologists that people are out there to steal your work. I, I did a little bit of research on this at some point. I'll I'll publish the blog blog post. I did a bit of stuff on that, but I've gone through and looked at all the retracted papers. So there's lists of retracted papers for, you know, people basically uh, stealing work. And I only found one related to archaeology, which is actually more of a bioanthropology, uh, a forensic paper that basically got retracted because it had stolen work. And so it's not actually an issue that comes up. So like, I mean, out of all the thousands upon thousands of papers, only one relatively related to archaeology has ever been retracted for involving stolen work, which there's you know there's that could either mean that we it doesn't happen that much and we're paranoid for no reason, or it happens all the time and no one reports it, um which is probably its own issues. But have you guys experienced, you know you know working in different parts of the country? Where you, you know you, you're talking to other archaeologists and they just won't share anything with you, <laughs> um, and they they are like, yo, I, I'm afraid my work's going to be stolen or other reasons. I mean that that was mainly doing with conferences and more academic. But I also you know you'll talk to people who are working in different companies and you'll be like, hey, you know, do you guys have work on or anything like that? And they will be incredibly cagey and just be like, oh, you know, there's stuff here or there, maybe happening, maybe not. Um, but won't give you any details of any of the work or projects they're doing. Do you guys run
0: into that? Well, what do you first off, what do you mean by stolen work? Because I I'm very curious as to that. Like is somebody stealing a data set and they're and they're making their own conclusions on that, which honestly we should be sharing data, but or, or are they just completely writing the paper for somebody else? And if that's the case, my God, how how is that even possible? Because how many papers have you seen lately? that only have one author on them. I mean, it's not like people are working in a vacuum on this stuff. There's a whole team of people. So how can somebody just come in and even steal work? How's it even possible?
1: So I think it's uh, there's there's a couple of different things. Um, one person has actually had someone word for word steal their work and reprint it in like a book. So in that case, though, I, t- I told that person, congratulations, you've just hit the jackpot. <laughs> well, because like, In the states, uh, copyright infringement is an automatic. It's like a hundred thousand dollar fine. Like it's it's Mm. like that's there's nothing like they're going to pay you a couple hundred if you have someone steal your work and you can you know obviously if it's on the internet and it's being pirated you know (laughs) I don't think this is ever going to occur to archaeologists but you know if it was on like a torrent or something like that you're not going to be able to track the person down. Uh, but this person had published it in a book so they could go after the publisher or the individual and sue them for copyright infringement. It was straight up copyright infringement, but that person didn't seem interested in following that route. Um, so that that's one instance, but like where they basically copy word for word. And I think that's um, fairly rare and you, it should be something that's pretty easy to capture and actually... My God, I wish someone would copy word for word my stuff so I could retire <laughs> off of the, um, yeah, off the lawsuits.
0: Well, you're assuming archaeologists could pay that fine. <laughs> yeah,
1: but then like I think there's other issues where, uh, Chris, maybe you remember the episode we had um, the guy talk about the book of where he did the research into um, a fairly famous. Mediterranean archaeologist in the 1930s who basically stole all of his grad students' work mm. um, and put it into several chapters of his book right. um, but then again it also differs from different countries so um, I've talked to like German postgraduate students who basically say they'll write the papers but their professors names go on it but that's a different sort of cultural thing about work uh, but I've also had people um, where you know working with agent based modeling um I've been like, oh, that's a really cool model uh would you be willing to share the the code and stuff like that and they've said no mm. um, and they don't they don't want to share their code um, before it gets published, which I kind of get but in the same sense I would have quoted all of their information and said this code comes from so and so and let's give them credit and then you know cite them and stuff like that but I, I think some people. There was an Irish archaeologist a couple of months ago who went on a bit of a a tear writing a bunch of posts about how another archaeologist borrowed some of their data um, and then didn't properly in, – in his opinion, didn't properly cite him and give him enough mm. credit. My opinion of that was I thought he did – he could have done a little bit more to give credit, um, but I thought it was okay Uh, some of what he did. And, you know, mistakes happen, so – you you know, you're going through your entire reference list and uh, by accident you forget one person off or, you know, in your acknowledgements you you forget to thank someone and it could just Mm -hmm. be an innocent thing. Um, But yeah, a lot of it I've run into is people actually like paranoid they're going to steal word for word their work or paranoid that they're going to use their data and somehow write the paper before they can.
0: Well, I guess... I guess yeah. I guess it comes down to motivation too. I mean, on these academic circles, these people are all scrambling for. Uh, I mean, just like CRM companies, they're all scrambling for whatever they can get. They need tenure. They have to publish so much, and you know, so that's that's the motivation for that, I guess. Um, and I and I can see that. But I mean, I guess it, it, when you come down to talk about credit too, that's that's an interesting thing. I that that comes down to I think just professional courtesy sometimes, where people just want to be. People just want to be credited for their contribution to somebody else's work. I know I've given contributions to people before. I'm not going to talk about it here, but uh, and then they just go on to whatever they're going to do without any acknowledgement of the assistance that I gave them whatsoever. <laughs> so, you know, but that happens and that's up to the person to decide, well, am I going to give credit or not in that particular case? But when it comes down to data and actual science and citations, obviously we have an ethical standard that you know we will we will credit appropriately and and I, I think that some people may not think that's enough in some cases or whatever but is that stealing work when it's you know you have to properly cite it but that comes down to you know interesting interesting things when you're talking about stealing work from a from a CRM perspective to answer your earlier question is do we ever see that the only time i ever see real instances of stealing work is not stealing the work you've done but stealing actual work and really what i mean is stealing clients uh, or stealing uh, projects or something like that and it's really hard to steal those things but what you can do is you can go make a relationship with somebody else's uh, client if that you know like a long-term client like there's a there's a company here in town that is kind of the the favorite of one of the mining firms and and unlike government contracts where they have to you know uh, over certain prices they have to put this out to bid and they have certain parameters they have to follow with a point system you know it's really hard for them to favor one client over another because of the system that's in place and I wish everybody had that system in place. But when you go to talk about private clients, especially like in California, there are tons of private companies, development firms, things like that, where they are, you know, housing developers or construction firms or something like that. And, and every time they need to have CRM done, which is a lot because of the California Environmental Quality Act, then they have a particular firm that they go to. and there are so many so many companies in california that are just like one or two people and they're all scrambling for the bottom and they're all going to these companies and saying hey you know i know you've been working with these guys for 5 years but i can do the job faster cheaper and uh, and better and so hire me and then you know they either get hired or they don't but that's stealing clients and that's that's really where I see this in CRM. I don't know. I don't know if I really see it anywhere else. If you're trying to steal somebody's work to write a paper in CRM, what is your motivation? I, I keep going back to that. Is it just fame and archaeological fame? It's definitely not fortune. But is it fame? Is it, you know, I want to get my name out there? Or am I trying to get an ap- academic position? Because if, if you're not, what the hell's the point? you know why Why would I steal anybody's work why would anybody steal any's work to write a paper or to present at a conference or to do something like that in CRM again academics the, the currency of academia is publishing but not CRM it's its just not it's kind of a lucky bonus I don't know maybe Steven has a different thought on that who knows
2: well I can't you tell don't. you
0: <laughs> <laughs> No, um, I'm going to steal it whatever it is
2: yeah that, that, I'm, <laughs> I'm worried about that uh yeah, I think that um, part of it is that prior work, prior experience, you know, counts for something, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, and, and, you know, not just field work, but, you know, like, you know, tech, technical expertise. Like when, when you put forward your, you know, the staff who's going to work on this project you're bidding on, you know, you, you list off the qualifications of the higher up. Staff, so you know people who have more technical expertise doing fancy stuff and having published in it. You know, I mean that that's not gonna make or break. You know, that's not gonna seal the deal, but it's definitely going to you know affect the decision making process. And if if you're you know kind of piggybacking off of somebody else's work, if you're if you're stealing their you know um, publications or whatever. And and you're basically, you know, borrowing their expertise to, you know, make the sale.
0: All right. Well, that sounds like a good point to stop on. And when we come back, we're going to continue talking about this topic. And then I also want to bring up the phenomenon of people with master's degrees or not in some cases, depending where you're at, starting their own company for various reasons, whether those are good or not and, and what that can do to our field. Back in a second. Hey, podcast fans and digital archaeologists. Have you heard about WildNote? It's a data collection app that works online or offline on your smartphone or tablet, iOS, or Android. It allows you to collect field data easily, manage data efficiently, and generate data reports and site records effortlessly. We have a growing list of state site forms built in for your use and some generic forms that will work anywhere. Check out the shovel testing and photograph forms. You can get a free all-access 30-day trial today by going to wildnoteapp.com. That's wildnoteapp.com for your free 30-day trial. This network is listener-supported. We're trying to move away from paid advertising while also creating new shows and supporting the ones we have. The APN has never and will never make a serious profit on our podcast. Every little dime we make goes back into the network and improving show quality. So become a member today at wwwarkpodnetcom members to show your support, get some extras, and be a benefactor for archaeological education. Members get stickers, a coffee mug, a t-shirt, bonus content, early access to episodes, a private Slack team to talk to other members and the hosts, and full access to training on Team Black over at arccert.black. So check out our memberships at www.archpodnet.com slash members today and support archaeological education. That's www.archpodnet.com slash members. Now back to the show. Welcome back to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 142. And we're talking about competition in archaeology, for lack of a better way to say that. (laughs) And uh, Stephen, you had a thought on something I was mentioning earlier last segment.
2: You you were talking about... uh Uh, going to other, other people's uh, clients and being Mm -hmm. like, well, I can do the job. And, and, but isn't that part of advertising? I mean, it's, it's one thing to like pointedly steal someone's client list um, or, or, you know, um, trying to talk up certain clients while, while like a project's ongoing, but, you know, getting the advertisement out there and being like, Hey, um, even if you already have a, you know, CRM firm that, that you work with, you know, perhaps you'd like to give us a chance. Um, we, we think we can do a better job mm-hmm. because X, you know, wh- whatever our reason is. And and right. I, I don't want to put you too much on the spot, but I recalled when you were starting up dig tech, when, when mm-hmm. you're start, starting up your firm, you had a sales pitch like that. Is, is that right?
0: For sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And, and that you're right. I don't, that probably isn't stealing. I, I mean, it, people will call it stealing just like in the industry like oh he stole that client from me but it's not really stealing in the, in the sense that Doug was talking about with academics earlier i think to i think to clarify or, or to restate that in a way um, because you're right i mean that's that's just marketing <laughs> that's just how how business works right and you know i can do it faster cheaper and and hire me and that's that's a deal i think to add something to what i was saying real stealing of clients would be uh, and, and I've seen this happen before and I've heard of it happening before where you're working at a company and you are, say, a project manager. It, so a, comp- a basic company structure might be you have a principal investigator and or owner. Sometimes they're not the same person. And then maybe you have a business developer. But a lot of times in smaller companies, the business developer is the principal investigator. And then you have project managers and then you have maybe field directors, maybe not. But then you have crew chiefs and field techs and so on. So the project manager ends up after the after the project is given to them, really developing a relationship with the client. And in a lot of cases, the project manager will have the most solid relationship with the client or the actual person. Maybe not the the client who's the 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 person at the client who's writing the checks, but the person at the client who is making decisions about you know who they're gonna who they're gonna hire or who who's who they're gonna work with or something like that. Especially with private companies, not not government entities, but. So the project manager has a really solid relationship. And when that project manager says, listen, I'm going to go to another company or I'm going to start my own company, the first thing they do is they call all their clients that they're working closely with and say, hey, you've enjoyed working with me these past few years. I've done a really good job for you, keeping your projects under budget and on time. Will you come over and work with me? And that can be unethical. It can be illegal in some cases, depending on the contract you have. You might have a no compete clause with your company. And if you leave that company, for whatever reason, you might not be able to work with any of their clients for like a year or something like that, or work in the CRM for a year or do whatever you're going to do, or, you know, start a new company. Sometimes bigger companies will have a no compete clause like that. Most smaller ones do not. But that I think is, is real stealing. Again, it's up to you to kind of decide, is that unethical? Maybe you can do the job better and faster, but did you actually, did you actually go out and do the hard work of getting those clients? Or are you just taking those clients from your current, your current company, good or bad?
2: if you if you build up that relationship though isn't that the hard work of working with that
0: client yeah but I mean, let's look at the let's look at the ethics of that you're a project manager it's your job to build up that relationship not to build up that relationship so you can steal it for yourself you know if i hire you as a project manager i would expect you to build that relationship with a client not so you could eventually just take the client from me and go start your own company
2: well no but that's not even necessarily why the why the you know project managers you know building up that relationship? They're building up that relationship because they're doing the work, and then right. for whatever reason, if they leave, you know, you know, uh, I I I get where where you're selling that at. Um, you know, p- partly, <laughs> um, because this is kind of what my barber did. <laughs> like I got I got a text a few months ago, uh, you know, like right before I was like, hmm, I'm getting about due for a haircut, and I got a text from him, and he's like just so you know, I'm not at that place anymore. Mm -hmm. I got a new place, you know, if you'd like, come check me out. And, 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 and I totally went with him because I mean, he's the reason I was going to that shop. Mm -hmm. So he did, he was doing the hard work. Yeah. Like he didn't own the business and, and, you know, and, and I mean, the establishment was perfectly fine, but I followed him because he's the guy who cuts my hair. Yeah, <laughs> you, you know, it. and and uh, so so I do kind of wonder about that because you know, okay, I, I i could see like getting the client list and being you know, shotgunning out emails or whatever, and being like, hey, just so you know, you know, come come work, come hire me instead, mm-hmm. uh, rather than you know, like if, if you're working on a project and and you're talking to the client and you're like, well, just keep in mind, six months from now, I'm not going to be here, so right, um you know if, if i'm going to be at this other place it's up it's up to you whether you want to work with me or you want to stick with uh you know my my current company
0: yeah and i and i'm not even saying this is unethical behavior i think it's up to each person to decide whether or not that's unethical behavior if you really did the hard work and you did it with sincerity not with the goal of starting your own company and taking those clients then you know, that's great. But if but if anybody listening to this is a business owner and now they're starting to think, man, when I go back to work uh, tomorrow and and I'm going to or I'm at work now <laughs> listening to this podcast and I'm going to look at my project managers and go, man, I mean, this, there's a high turnover in this field. Even amongst salaried employees, there's a high turnover in this field. And you go, you always have to kind of wonder what are the motivations of the person working for you. And I'll tell you right now, the motivations of the person working for you in archaeology, unless they're a co-owner of the business with you. The mo- their motivation is survival. Their motivation is I need a paycheck, and I need to pay my bills, and I need to support my family, and I need to do this, and and that's their motivation. So if they leave, there's a halfway decent chance they're gonna they're gonna try to uh, either take that client that they're working with to a new company, or or have them for themselves if they're gonna start their own company. And I think that's just part of this business. And if you don't want that to happen, then you have them sign a no compete clause. That's 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 all there is to it that I don't think that exists in archaeology and in real in the lower levels of these companies, maybe in the bigger engineering firms where that's just a standard thing, the part of your contract. But like I said, maybe have them sign a no compete clause and they can't take the clients with you. I I don't even know if that's legal, but or or how you would even do that. So don't don't write that based on what I said.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Also, I'd have to say it, it can be very awkward for the client when something like this happens, so I've oh, sure. I, I've been on the other end of this, where um, I, I keep the details really, really um, vague, uh, just because these people are still around, and I don't really want to. <laughs> it was awkward, and I don't really want to relive this whole situation or have it go horribly wrong again. Mm-hmm. But essentially, we put together a, a large project. And and so it was a proposal, multiple different partners. And we specifically went with this one company because of one of their employees. They had a certain skill set that we needed that was not easily rec- – uh, you couldn't to, – to put it, there might be like three or four other people in the UK, who could possibly have this skill set, and probably not their same level of exposure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we we could get someone else, but they wouldn't be as well known. Um, and so, like this person, pretty much a unicorn, as it were, in, in archaeology, and and we needed them. And then they decided that they were going to to leave the company um, and go do their own. You know, I'm pretty sure they. Went self-employed. I don't think they started their own company, but you know, went out on their own. So we got an email um, saying, "You know, hey, I'm I'm leaving. I'd still like to be involved in this project." Um, we we're like, "Yeah, we'd be happy to have you," but they would sent that email from their current work email, so their current employer was monitoring their emails
2: because mm-hmm. you
1: know it was a company email, and so we got an email from them saying whoa, 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 we, we want to be involved in this project as well. And it worked out that they they still had their own uh, skill set and we still needed, that. We, we needed both of them, both the employee and the employer. And so it worked out. We were able to smooth everything over. But it was a really incredible, awkward situation to have that happen before the project even started. We talked about, you know, taking clients and stealing stuff. But actually, you know, if you're a client and you're getting like, cold called, like, Hey, I'm leaving this company. Um, it actually puts the client in a very awkward position because one, it may be that you're actually, your main relationship is with the company. Mm -hmm. Um, and you like, you may like that project manager and they may be great, but you might be going with that company for other reasons. And then it's just sort of a bit awkward, or if, if it is that person, Um, And then you go with them. Then you also have a very awkward situation uh, with the previous company as well. Um, And, so, you know, sometimes that can work out just fine. Like if it's project to project and you just, you know, you put it out to tender and you get someone new, that's that's all fair and that's how it works. But um, some clients I can guarantee are not going to be too receptive uh, to that sort of situation.
0: Yeah, if you're working for a bigger company right now and you're you're talking to one of their clients and saying, "Hey, I'm I'm moving somewhere else or I'm striking out on my own." You better have a clear understanding of the relationship of your current company to that client because if it's a bigger if it's a bigger client and you're a bigger company, you know, you you could have a really complex multi-level relationship with that company and the and, and the clients going to be like, "No, we're not going to go with you because you know, we we deal with you guys on multiple fronts." Stephen
2: yeah. Well, and, and beyond that, you know, just because you have a working relationship with one of their project managers doesn't mean that mm-hmm. you've worked with all their project managers. And, right. you know, if you're going someplace else, consideration is like, can you actually do all the work that they would need done?
0: Because mm-hmm.
2: if, you know, like, you're, you're not just going to get, like, if, if it's a large firm, you're not just going to get projects from that one guy. You're going to get projects from the entire thing. And so, in order to actually get that is you're going to have to be able to demonstrate that you know you, you can get the boots in the ground on the ground you can get you know that you can actually deal with that kind of workload um you know and if you're just like two guys in a truck it you know good <laughs> luck to you man
0: man there's got to be a company out there called two guys in a truck in archaeology
2: <laughs> no there they better not be because that's my that's the way i refer to the to the small small groups at time see like, yeah you guys in the truck
0: nice yeah. nice
2: But then like,
1: you know, that sort of that concern about they're going to take your clients kind of leads to like a lot of, I would say unhealthy working situations throughout a lot of archaeology and companies. Cause then I guess this comes down to ethics because you can kind of think about like, well, so you've been at this company and you're going to go strike it out on your own, but you now know like the, I guess the costings of that company. So potentially you could go and take that information and know when you're when you're bidding you can undercut them. Like if if you know their costings you could be like, "Well, they're doing it for, you know,
0: uh $50 an acre survey. I can do it for 45." Some of those bigger firms, they you know, you always talk about the multipliers. So if you're getting paid twenty dollars an hour at at one firm, but then you go to you know Aecom or AMEC or one of those bigger you know firms, and you're making twenty dollars an hour, your your billable rate at the one firm might only be forty five dollars an hour. That's what they're billing the client for you because when you factor in taxes and overhead and things like that, you know it's a multiplier of maybe two point five. But you go to these bigger firms, they can have multipliers of three or four. And your twenty dollars an hour is actually billing out at eighty or ninety dollars an hour, so they can even compete with you on some of the smaller projects, unless it's unless it's really big. So you really can undercut them.
1: But I also like think that's a. But then that also leads to sort of like unhealthy um, absolutely expectations as well, because you people will go out and they they learn their uh, their bill out rate, and they're like,
0: mm-hmm. wait,
1: wait, I'm only making twenty, but this company is now charging a hundred and 20 for my, you know, or 80 or 90 or just make up a number. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's more than what they're being charged out for. And then I think people suddenly, because they don't understand those multipliers or what those costs are.
0: Yeah.
1: Feel cheated or uh, so many, so many archeologists tend to get really bitter when they see their, their charge out rate without thinking that they should be getting more of that chunk um, and this this goes back to like that sort of unhealthy uh, communication that happens between archaeologists is that you know within within commercial companies, as you get that, but also like you know that sort of concept. Oh, we may have work for you next week, we may not, yeah. and that is that is part of CRM. You know, you may have work, you may not, but I do find that uh, especially at at some companies. They'll they'll just not tell you that they're running out of work, um, because they don't want you to look for another job. For sure. And I I I, I see both ends of that, because like as a as an employer, you you don't have work coming up for them, but you do want them to last out the last of your projects, because if not, you're going to be short staffed.
0: Yeah, and I think that I think that that's okay because as long as the field tech is also playing that game, and the field tech is like. Oh yeah, sure. I'm available for you guys. No problem. But they're honestly, they're filling out CVs and, and job applications left and right because they've got to consider their own preservation as well. And I feel like as long as there is no animosity on either side, and, and of course there is, but there shouldn't be because the company needs to know that the field tech is looking out for their own best interests. And the field tech needs to know that the company is looking out for their own best interests. And it's a it's a give and take. And if, as long as both parties understand that, then hopefully they can get past that. But Right before we go to the break here, I want to mention two things. First off, that misunderstanding of the billable rate is probably one of the single most important issues, I think, in the business of archaeology and understanding how this works that people really need to get. Because, sure, you might be making $20 an hour and let's say you are billing out at $120 an hour to the client and you find that out. And you're like, son of a bitch. That's why this company has fancy offices and they're all driving Teslas. Well, take a look. They're probably not. If you're if you're complaining about your billable rate, and you also have a shitty office computer, and it's you know a a, a crappy office and <laughs> you know, whatever, and the trucks are always broken, I guarantee you the money's not going. There's not a lot of money there because the company might be billing you out at one hundred twenty dollars an hour, but that's because they have a lot of bills to pay. Your taxes are high. Their taxes are high other things are coming out of that every single person in there that's not working on the project that's part of the the writing team or the or the secretaries or the the office administrators whoever the case may be the janitorial staff that comes in and cleans at night they're all paid out of your billable rate so the company might only be making 5-10 dollars an hour on your billable rate and and maybe not even that sometimes so understanding that is critical and then finally i'll just address really fast because it's it's kind of come up but i'll 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 squash it right away in case people are thinking this. I did start my company after leaving another uh, fairly decent sized firm. It's more of a West Coast firm, but I I did start my company after that and I didn't take a client list with me. Uh, I didn't uh, do anything like that because I started my company really for other reasons. I didn't really necessarily want to do CRM archaeology. I want to stay in that business, but I started my company to focus on the digital aspect to, to really focus on podcasting and education and things like that. I'm doing CRM, but not as a primary part of my business. And it just so happens though, that the very last project I did for that company, when they turned in the report and then the next, the next year, because this is an annual project that gets done for this really small mine. It's a really small project. I mean, it's like $3,500 a year. I mean, it's really small. Uh, when that project came around again, uh, about four months later, when the woman who's in charge of that, was putting out the, uh, uh, call for the proposal for it. Cause she still gets a proposal. She called me directly and didn't know that I wasn't working for that company anymore. I was like, Oh, sorry. I'm, I, I actually quit there like four months ago right after that project. And she's like, Oh, well, okay. And I was like, I did start my own firm. That's why I quit. And I'm doing my own thing and, and all this stuff. And she's like, well, uh, I like the way you did this. And do you want this project? And I was like, ah, I don't know, maybe. And I was like, can I call you back? <laughs> Cause I wasn't really sure. And then, I ended up calling it back and I ended up doing it and I've done it for the last six or seven years now, however long it's been. So, uh, so I didn't steal her, but she came with me willingly and, and, and sought me out, which is pretty great. So, and, and one of the big reasons, as you guys have mentioned, you know, that I, I didn't even think about even calling the clients that this other company had is because they were way too big for me. Like I, I couldn't go work for a huge mine and have a staff of 20 right out of the gate. I didn't have the money. So there is that anyway we're long on this let's take a break and come back for our final segment we'll wrap this up with some uh, some final thoughts and and I keep going on this back in a second are you interested in history or knitting well we are too i'm heather boyd and i'm rachel roden and we have a new podcast called historical yarns that brings the two together each season, we'll have six episodes where we dive into the history of a knitting technique and knit a project designed by one of us using that technique. So join us for season one on August 31st, 2018, here on arcpodnet.com slash historical yarns. Happy knitting! Tired of the webinars and training offered by the big organizations not being free for members and not really covering what we need? Team Black has the answers. Check out slash main for our upcoming webinar schedule. All of our webinars happen once a month and seating is limited. Learn everything from field tech basics to drones to digital workflows. We have more classes coming online every month. Classes are always 1 hour. Classes like building a CV and getting a job are always free. That's right. We'll help you get a job. Then we'll be here when you want to level up your skills. If you are a professional subscriber to the APN at arcpodnet.com slash members, then you get all of Team Black's offerings for free as part of your membership. We have Team Black memberships coming that will give the same for the APN. So $20 a month gets you all the APN swag and extras, plus free training from Team Black. So check out arccert.black for more information and level up your skill set today. That's arccert.black. Now back to the show. Hey, everybody. This is Chris Webster in the editing phase of this podcast. And before we start the segment, I just want to point out that we actually lost Doug's track for this entire third segment. (laughs) Sorry about that. It's the first time using this new recording software that we've ever lost anything. It was an internet glitch, and uh, it won't happen again, hopefully. But... I wanted to mention that because he's oddly silent for this track. Uh, I'm going to cut in again at some point and let you know what he was saying so we can continue the discussion. On to segment three. All right. Welcome back to the final segment of the Sierra Archaeology Podcast, episode 142. And we're talking about competition in archaeology here. And this this naturally segues into business ownership because that's what a lot of us think, that, that the, the way forward and success in archaeology is business ownership. And and in the real business world, in, in the real entrepreneurial world, that is kind of the way forward. So I, I don't begrudge anybody for having that opinion. Like, if I'm going to really make it on my own, I need to start my own business. Uh, because that's what generally people tend to kind of think. You know, you're working for somebody else and you're like, man, I don't, I don't want to be working for the man anymore, for the woman, whatever the case may be. And I'm going to go start my own thing. Well, I personally think that only really works if you're going to start something different, especially in a really small field. You have to start something different. And I I, I was telling the guys before we started here that it's probably once or twice a month that I get an email or a Facebook message or something from somebody that it knows me somehow. And they're like, you know, you started a business. I'm thinking about starting my own business. You know, do you have any advice on that? And one of the first things I ask him is what, well, why are you thinking about starting your own business? You know, and, and nine times out of 10, you know, they have a master's degree. So they're thinking, okay, and now I'm qualified. Uh, eh, that's wrong. But anyway, so nine times out of 10, though, they're like, well, I just, you know, I'm not happy with uh, the work I'm getting. I'm not getting enough work. And I think that if I just went out on my own, I could do small projects on my own and I could just, I could just pay the bills. And that may be true in some places. That may actually be true in California because California has a lot of really small projects. And that's why there are so many tiny firms. But that being said, there are so many tiny firms. And if you're finding right now that you're not getting on jobs and you're not getting projects, the problem might be that there isn't enough work. Like there physically isn't enough work in the area that you're in and you might have to go somewhere else or you might have to do something else. But if but if, you're, if your plan is to start a new archaeology firm and, and come up with a completely different strategy and have some sort of different business model and something like that, something that could be successful... Well, then more power to you. You know, go ahead and do that. But I think if your plan is to find work and pay the bills, then you just took that really tiny slice of pie that everybody had and cut it one more time. And now there's even less work. And and more more importantly, there's less work that you can actually afford because unless you go into this with fifty or a hundred thousand dollars, you're not gonna be able to afford to do the projects. You're simply not. Because you're gonna do a three thousand dollar project this week and you're gonna say, Okay, I just made three thousand dollars. No, you still have to write the report and they're not going to pay you for 2 months. So what are you going to do for the next 2 months for money? You're going to do another $3,000 project. Then you're going to do another one. And maybe in 2 or 3 months you'll start getting money in, but that's to pay off the credit cards you've been living off of for the past 2 to 3 months. And and then if you have a project where you need a person, well now you got to pay for them. And they're getting $20 an hour, you're billing them out at $35 an hour because you said I can do this cheaper. Then you realize shit, their taxes are $15 an hour. And I have to give them per diem. What the hell's going on here? You just made two dollars on that person, and unless you have a company of a thousand people, that's not enough money. So, I'm not trying to dissuade anybody from owning a business, but really understand all the aspects of it before you go do that. Steven, I think you were about to comment.
2: No, my comment was just more of a smart ass, like, who, "Who the hell is your client that you get paid in two months?"
0: <laughs> right? That's quick. <laughs>
2: yeah, it's like expected quarterly payment, right?
0: Like- Let me bring this up because I, I talked about this on the You Call This Archaeology live Facebook show that we did, but I've never talked about it on a regular podcast before. And this might be, while we're talking about competition, uh, this might give you a leg up and, and help you actually be able to afford archaeology. I've been doing uh, sales with an uh, app development company called Wild Note. And since I've been trying to do sales, I'm not a salesperson, right? I just this is not what I do. Um, I mean, I can kind of sell something just by talking about it, but actual sales is an art. And there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books out there. And I've been listening to podcasts on sales and selling and selling techniques and things like that and understanding people. And uh, I have not read The Art of the Deal uh, by 45, and I probably won't. But anyway, so I've been listening to this podcast on sales. And one of the things this guy said, uh, and he's dealing with a completely different market, but he said, one of the things you can do is to basically offer a discount for prepayment if you're strapped for cash and a lot of companies are strapped for cash especially new or smaller companies are strapped for cash so i tried this on a project that i had uh, just a couple weeks ago and i sent them uh, i sent them the proposal in april and i knew we were doing the project in about july or so i sent them the proposal in april and, and and every year this is the project i do annually that i mentioned at the end of the last segment and every year, the the well every other year or so, the price goes up just a little bit. I mean, it's inflation. You know, the cost of doing business goes up just a little bit. So, um, so I inflated the price. It was it happened to be a year where I was inflating the prices just a little bit, like five hundred dollars, I think. And then I offered them a tiered discount, and I said, "You'll get five percent off if you do this. You'll get ten percent off if you do this. You'll get fifteen percent off if you do this." And the fifteen percent off was basically if they paid for the project in full, it's a fixed price project. If they paid for the project in full. Prior to me going into the field, then they would get 15% off. And that 15% off translated into them saving, they saved about $700, but they really saved about $200 if I hadn't raised raised my practices over last year. Either way, it still was helpful to me because... I'm a small business. I don't have a ton of money in the bank, and I was able to rent the Trimble, get the hotel rooms, get the vehicle, do all the stuff I needed to do without putting that on a credit card or taking my my checking account down too low. You know, for the business, whatever the case may be, uh, I was able to do all that because they they paid me about three days before I went in the field. I got a check, and it was fantastic. And then and then I was able to write the report. Um, I finished the report this week. It's under review by the Forest Service, and when it's done, I'll have the Hundred and twenty dollars or whatever they've already paid me to get the three or four copies printed up uh, in color and bound and then shipped off to them, and it's fantastic. in In years past, I've been sitting there and I've got the client saying, "Hey, where's the report?" And I'm like, "You know, the draft report is with the client, but hey, where's my payment?" You know, you want the report, pay me. <laughs> you know, it's like I I already did the work. It's going to be, you know, 2-3 months before they send payment and and my the actual person I deal with she's cool, but it's the billing department that is, you know, not paying me on time. And the minute I told the billing department I could save them 15%, they didn't hesitate. They sent me a check. So, anyway, it's it's a strategy. This is Chris Webster in the editing phase, and I'm back again to let you know what Doug was saying here. He was actually saying that there was too much competition in archaeology, and he was uh, uh, he actually agreed with me, and I'm pretty sure that's why we lost this track, because the internet gods couldn't allow Doug to agree with me. So uh, I threatened to take that phrase where he said, I agree with you, Chris, and then use it in other podcasts, and we lost everything. So <laughs> let's move on, and I continue on discussing competition in archaeology right now there's too much competition and too much paranoia. And I think if we all worked together to understand that fact, um, and we did more collaborative work, like, could you imagine, uh, rather than having the traveling field tech that was unemployed every few weeks and, and could never build up a solid, uh, work history enough to like get a bank loan for a car or a house or something like that. Could you imagine if we all worked for we all work for a company, and instead of hiring sixteen field techs on your next project that are that are just going to work there for three months, you hire another CRM firm that just doesn't have any work for that segment, and you bring their field techs to your project. You know, as a as a subcontractor, if it's allowed. Sometimes subcontractors aren't allowed, but you bring them in and, and do that. I mean, that what that would be some good collaboration, Stephen.
2: That, that that
0: does happen though. That, that happens quite
2: a bit. Um, you get the I, larger any firm. Quite a bit. I've seen it quite a bit um, on mm-hmm. large, larger, uh, particularly pipeline projects. Is there's usually mm-hmm. a lot of uh, subcontracting and stuff like that. Al- also, informally, a lot of times, like if if you know we need more bodies for you know a short period, one of the first things to do happen is to, um, you know the people doing the hiring call around the other firms like, hey, do you, do you have anybody who's on like downtime right now? Because we've got a couple weeks of work. It would keep them moving while you know. You know, while you don't have anything for them, um, so it's not like it's not a structured like uh, yeah, temp service sort of thing. But it, it, right. there is a certain amount of like, hey, we're letting our crew go. The really good guys. If you need if you need some really good guys, you know th- these people are wonderful. Take them.
0: Well, it'd be nice to have that kind of cooperate cooperative agreement with just like a handful of firms. Like maybe you've got a a Slack channel going on in the in the background, a Slack team like we have, and say, hey, you know, here's our here's our thing for the next you know few weeks. You we, you just say if anybody needs any texts or you know we're busy or something like that, and just have like the project managers or something on there and and be cooperative and or even things like you were saying. You, somebody said a while back was. Uh, something like GIS. That's a, that's a really hot specialty. And a lot of times GIS is a bottleneck at a company. And it's really hard to get all the GIS work done if you've got a lot of projects because there's usually only one or two GIS techs. But subbing out your GIS work to another firm. Now, of course, you have to make sure that they have the qualifications and necessary permits and things like that to see the archaeological data. But you know, using those resources or labs, some archaeologists, some companies have labs and some don't. You know, if I ever got a project where I needed lab work done, I would have to sub that out because I don't have a lab and I'm not doing it in my kitchen. So I have just got one and I, I want you guys to answer this in 30 seconds. I mean, your elevator pitch for why you have not thought of this or have thought of this or whatever. But the scenario is you're educated. You have experience in archaeology in the United States. Would you or would you not consider starting your own business
2: I I can't see myself starting a firm doing exactly what I'm already doing. Mm -hmm. It's being done. Um, And and it's being done by a lot of people. Um, And and aside from the, you need to have a lot of cash to do it, which I don't, um, you need, there's a long time to develop like a reasonable client base of a reasonable workload. So there will Mm -hmm. be years of not making very much money, if any money at all. Um, only getting small contracts. So along with Doug, my, my thought is that, yeah, I, I have considered doing something else that's tangential to uh, the sorts of stuff we do. And and I can't even tell you what it is because um, I don't really know. You know if, if I knew, I'd probably be doing it because it'd, it'd be um, pretty cool. <laughs> uh, but it, it would involve uh, a lot of... Uh, Spatial oriented social science type stuff. Um, Preferably historically minded or heritage minded. But, you know, at at the same time, I I am really drawn to the sorts of things that like applied anthropologists do. Um, And Mm -hmm. if we could do similar things with a more historical mindset and doing with like place and space and material culture and stuff like that. Right. um, That, that would be the sort of thing I would be, interested in trying to can't say break into because no. it doesn't exist but um you know developing it as as
0: yeah. a market this is why you guys are on this podcast um because we all we all have different opinions but i, I feel like we all kind of think outside the box a little bit too and I, and i think that a lot more of that needs to be in archaeology uh, we need to be thinking outside of our traditional ways of, of, as Doug said, our bread and butter uh, and and see what we can bring to the field and, and more importantly, see how we can diversify a little bit and keep everybody working, but not just for the sake of working, but to, to keep doing good things. And one of those good things is public archaeology and outreach and, and all the things you guys just said. So. That's it for this show, though. So we'll be back next time with uh, another exciting topic that I have no idea what it's going to be, but I'm sure it will be fascinating. We'll be back next week. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archpodnet.com slash Podcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website, or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at archpodnet.com slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. Bye. Dr. Doug.
2: It's not even counting.
0: Uh, Hello, this is Doug, and uh, I agree with Chris. Goodbye. (laughs) Thanks, Doc. (laughs) This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network.